0: Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and we are going to talk to a veteran. John D'Angelo is a former Marine combat veteran of the Afghan surge and current peace activist behind the page Anti-War Vet, where he blogs. John, thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Doug.
0: So, Anti-War Vet, that phrase in and of itself probably doesn't, I mean, maybe libertarians know a few more than, than the average person, but if they're sharing this with a friend of theirs, they might say, what, an anti-war vet? Like, how is that even possible? Aren't you proud of your service? Don't you love your country? I mean, that's, that's where the, uh, the, the mismatch seems to come in. Have, have you, uh, have you had to explain yourself a lot to people?
1: Yeah, I, I have. It's, it's a challenging thing to grapple with because on one hand, you know, I don't really walk hand in hand with the libertarian world that paints with broad strokes about the military because I do think by and large the individual service members are thinking of what they're doing as some um, mm-hmm. moral right and or or they're completely non-ideological, stupid teenagers, which probably more captures what I was at the time. But yeah, it's it's been a weird transition or a challenging one um, because of all of the paradigms I kind of had to take apart and, and mm-hmm. rebuild. And on the same hand, there, there is a pretty, a pretty significant tradition of modern and within the last hundred years of really successful military members coming out against either various conflicts or conflict, military conflict in general. Um, so I, I did find some kinship, at least intellectually speaking, which helped a lot. And so as a Marine. There's a, a former Marine that we sing ditties about in boot camp um, and kind of lionize his name, is Smedley Butler, who you may be familiar with from his work, uh, which was a series of speeches he gave called Wars a Racket. And having been awarded two medals of honor for his service, I think in the Boxer Rebellion and then again in World War I, um, he came out vehemently against American entry into World War One, basically on the grounds that this was all um, sort of rent-seeking mm-hmm. corporatists, yeah. nonsense, and it was going to, you know, soak Europe in American blood for no reason, which is not something I think the average Marine can simultaneously hold in their mind, and they kind of get this weird cognitive dissonance and mm. pass it off as um, must have been like early onset dementia or something.
0: <laughs> you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning there that uh, you don't. Often treat the military like the sort of stereotypical libertarian often does. And what came to mind as you said that to me was that you treat individual servicemen as individuals and you don't stereotype them. You don't, you know, keep a prejudice against them simply because they've joined the military.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's useful, especially if we're trying to seek common ground that's going to help bring people along on our um, mission towards either making peace um, or bringing people into the liberty movement, Mm -hmm. you know, writing off every cop and and military man who are often, I think at least innately predisposed to smaller government views just by being generally conservative, Mm -hmm. whatever that means. Uh, I think it just alienates unnecessarily people who may otherwise be Mm -hmm. taking the walk with us.
0: Yeah. Well, to me, it emphasizes the need for the acknowledgement, at least for a for Christian, the acknowledgement of sort of social sins, like sins that are systemic, evil that is systemic, because you can have a terrible foreign policy while at the same time having people, active service members, who are genuinely good people. Right. Yeah. And I
1: think the same idea of uh, the Marine who can't contend with the idea of Smedley Butler being anti war is the libertarian who can't imagine a veteran who was proud of their service in some respect and still interested in the liberty movement. I mean, yeah, I, I had I had a long transformation into where I'm at ideologically today as a staunch opponent of war. And had I been cut off from major players or social media figures mm-hmm. because of my, during that transition, it may have turned me off altogether. I don't know. Um, Mm. so I, I don't know, I'm, I'm very much opposed to like, I want to, I want to get more flies with honey. And so I'd much rather try to understand people's paradigms and meet them where they're at and, um, just try to plant the seeds just like we do in any sort of uh, evangelist sense, you know?
0: Yeah. Okay. So, um, before we get to your story, I just want to ask, like I was, I was imagining, you know, introducing this episode and thinking about it and I was like, wow, I'm going to be talking to a veteran. And I had that sort of like impulse that it's just sort of habit for me to want to thank you for your service. And I'm kind of curious how that comes. I mean, I'm sure people have said that to you as soon as they learn that you're a vet or you're wearing something that may indicate that you are. How does that hit you when people say that to you?
1: Um, I loathe being thanked for my service, but not from the individual. Again, like it's a complicated thing, but yeah, I get where people come from when they say it. And I appreciate that it's generally trying to be Kind And they believe that what I've done is honorable, but I don't believe that what I've done is honorable. And I don't believe that what the US government does is honorable. And so I, um I struggle with, I struggle with accepting a thank you for uh, something that I don't, you know, I, I think, generally speaking, the American public believes that the US military is an innate good. And the mission that they're on to whether it's achieved democracy for these um backwards third world people or securing freedoms that somehow got lost in the middle east i think that they generally genuinely believe that and they're trying to express that somehow to these veterans who uh by and large you know just by polling don't believe in these conflicts themselves so i have a hard time and i i generally don't go on tirades to the mm-hmm. um you know grandma as she thanks me for my service but uh it it really sends a chill up my spine.
0: Yeah. So what's the, like, is there a positive spin to look at that? Like, I, I, I'm kind of with you on the, you know, the reaction. It's like, well, what service? And if you're not proud of exactly what you did or, or just the general support that you gave to the military, like, is there, is there a silver lining? Is like, is there something you can be like, look back and say, I'm, I'm proud that I did this in this way or in this mindset? I'm proud that I'm here.
1: And I don't think I'd be here without having been there. Mm-hmm. But um,
0: you mean here as in like where you are in your, your faith and politics and, and, I,
1: and yeah. yeah, as a Christian, even I, I don't know that I would have had the the necessary foundations and um, my early life just by experiences mm-hmm. that uh, lent me to meeting my wife, who brought me to church and who kind of started me on this whole path. So I, I mean, there's certainly silver linings. I I don't regret where my life has been, but I do regret that we exist in a society that put so many of my peers and myself in these unnecessary and uh, often illegal wars.
0: Yeah. So I think it's probably a good time to just transition to your story. You know, tell us a little bit about where you got started in the military. Did you have libertarian political views then? Were you a Christian? If you want to give us, you know, years, you don't have to give us like actual dates for anything, but, you know, just give us a sense of how long ago this was, because we're recording this in 2020. This could have been a few years ago or even longer? Yeah,
1: so I'm actually coming up on my 10-year anniversary from my deployment to Afghanistan. I got to Afghanistan in the latter half of 2011. So um, I was deployed to Helmand Province as a truck driver. And um, that's right when the Obama administration had decided to surge in Afghanistan, uh, that we were going to really take it to them and try to secure... Significant swaths of land and territory that we could exert our control over and um, try to limit the Taliban's mm-hmm. control in those in those areas. Uh, so I was in Helmand Province, where the community is extremely rural and have been living more or less the same material existence for fifteen hundred to two thousand years, uh, maybe longer, and um, who have a long history of being the rifles in the army that stands as the graveyard of empire. So. Mm seeing our, um, our multi-million dollar vehicles strapped with equipment and fuel and all of this, the, the juxtaposition between us and these insane vehicles relative to these locals who, I mean, none of them have running water and they've been living like an agricultural life forever. Uh, it, it was very bizarre. And so I became a libertarian probably in like 2012-ish, 2013. I had had a fairly, they would consider it like kinetic, but you know we were in these big armored trucks providing fuel security for um, the DOD. We didn't have armored fuel tankers enough to run our own fuel. So we would pay Afghan locals uh, exorbitant amounts of money to run the fuel for us and then we would protect them. Um, but this fuel is extremely expensive, just logistically, all the inputs to get it to where it is. Uh, it's something like $100 a gallon by the time it would get to our our trucks. And that's just a number I had heard in passing. So who knows its veracity, but you know, so people that would shoot at our convoys would more or less always target the sides of these trucks because it would mean that we would have to jump out and plug the holes of these trucks in, in this ridiculous, uh, scene, you know, we, we would spill hundreds or thousands of gallons on every convoy. And that was my start. Uh, my first steps into seeing how ridiculous, this whole thing was, is just to watch sort of the grinding bureaucracy in action as we're spilling thousands and thousands of dollars all over the sand.
0: Wow. Well, so you got to see firsthand something that people like me get told about in an article and, and sort of like it helps us wake up to hear or to, you know, see a headline or some article or even, you know, a podcast talking about something like what we're talking about right now. And you got to see that firsthand. So where did it go from there?
1: Yeah. So um, from Afghanistan, I had come home. I was actually a reservist uh,
0: and I had a kind of a weird experience. I had
1: joined, I uh, went through all my training, got into my unit and I got orders that month that I'd be deploying. So I was deployed the or put on active orders again that following month. And I was on orders for the next uh, year plus, year and a half or so. Um, so for the first two and a half, almost three years of my enlistment, I was on active duty and then I came home, and I just went back into normal preservist life, mm-hmm. where I was balancing, a, you know, one month, one weekend a month or whatever, and a, a job. So I had met my wife in the interim. Um, I'd started going to church, and I, having been in for the next, I was in for another uh, three years, sort of struggling with libertarian thought and, uh, you know, reading insane amounts, and then having become a Christian in that in that time, and. Yeah. Now I'm, now I'm here, uh, running a failed meme page. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it might, might be that way now, but maybe, maybe, uh, an addition later. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. So did you come to Christ after being in the military?
1: I was still in the reserves having never gone back on active duty. Yeah. Um, so that would have been probably 2013. Okay. That, uh, that I got saved.
0: Okay. And clearly, your girlfriend now your wife was part of the equation. But what were some of the things about Christianity that you found uh, compelling?
1: Yeah, so I um, I was going to to church with her, uh, sort of begrudgingly at first. I was not interested in um, in a faith based life at all. I, what experiences I did have with Christians was always it was almost like a caricature, um, or or I had imagined it to be this caricature of this Bible beating. You know, evangelist, and I just I found it off-putting. But what really appealed to me early on was that uh, the preacher that I had that I had gone to church with initially, whose son I'm in his church now, was just an incredible speaker and really communicated an average, very mundane image of a Christian as just an individual who lives within this world but apart from it in really distinct ways, and used a lot of he was very much steeped in scripture and, and the early writings of Christians. And so I, I early on got onto the path of reading, um, you know, Tertullian and I came across like David Lipscomb mm-hmm. early on and, and Leo Tolstoy. And so these these big formative names in my intellectual journey kind of steered me towards really thinking about a distinct divide between the heavenly kingdom and the earthly kingdoms yeah. and how I should sort of relate to those and all the while I'm thinking and, um, reflecting on my deployment and my time in the military and challenging a lot of, I guess my own preconceived notions. I mean, I was 18 when I enlisted, I was non-ideological. I didn't have any real political grounding. If I did, I would have been maybe like a moderate Republican, but Mm -hmm. with no, you know, by feeling or happenstance, not because I, I read a lot of, uh, Kirk as a kid, so yeah, it got me. It got me to. It got me to where I am now, and uh, I I started consuming a lot of libertarian thought and becoming really interested in that. And then I came across uh, Scott Horton, who um, I'm sure you're familiar with, but yeah, who is um, I think the preeminent thinker in the libertarian movement about the anti-war issues, um, and he's just encyclopedic in like U.S. foreign interventions and the crimes that stem from them or preceded them yeah and that's kind of how i got to where i'm at now
0: yeah well i mean your your list of authors that you mentioned there earlier is often the kind of stuff that lci puts out with like we recommend these authors as well you know if you're if you're a christian thinking about christian liberty thought and how does how does the state interact with our christian faith you know that kind of thing so who were some of your early libertarian influences like if you know back in, you said like 2012 or so, you started sort of leaning libertarian. Who did you, who did you find compelling to read? So Tom Woods
1: was my first modern libertarian name that I came across looking for podcasts. I had a long commute and I wanted something that was going to sort of start to help me think about this stuff more. Mm. And, um, when I had come across him, he was, it was fairly early in his, his podcasting career. And, um, he was fascinating. Still, I'm I'm still a huge fan of Tom's. I think he's an excellent thinker and writer and uh, his works have been really important and fundamental to me in in my thought. Yeah, I don't want to make him out to be messianic. It's odd, but... um, (laughs) uh, It's
0: It's okay that we have people who sort of rescue us from a certain trajectory and are involved in our lives, probably from a distance. Maybe you've met him in person, I don't know. But it's okay in my mind that there are people who keep us in the faith or who lead us to the faith or who keep us and to, to make it not about faith per per se, but like within libertarianism, like there are people who give sound arguments and there are people who are really good at their rhetoric. And Tom Woods is one of the best. Yeah. You know, his rhetoric is good. He's 98% of the time. He's really nice about it. You know, he's got an edge every now and then. He's like, this is ridiculous, you know, whatever. But like, I love Tom. So anyway, it's okay. Like, uh, you know, no, he's not messianic. We know that, <laughs> but it's okay to speak highly. Well, it's a,
1: the podcast thing is weird, right? Because especially in the Liberty movement where there's so few really monumental figures today, I see that they become these polarizing faces. And, uh, you know, I, I try not to wade into things that are too divisive in the Liberty movement themselves. And I know mm-hmm. he can be, but, um,
0: yeah, he's not afraid of the controversy in certain areas. No,
1: no, yeah. which is great. I mean, you know, if, if we're going to have these principles, we have to be ready to defend them, um, sure. especially in the intellectual space. But uh, yeah, so he he was really important uh, and still is to my intellectual development. And then I started reading, uh, Tolstoy was actually huge. And, um, you know, he's not a libertarian as we would imagine it as like a yeah. free market tier. But his book, The Kingdom of God is Within Us, is was huge for my turn into, I I would now consider myself an anarchist, um, or a hopeful anarchist. I I recognize that there are plenty of uh, challenges and unknowns, but I I think that that's the the best, the best idea for human, human societies and the structuring of of how we deal with one another. Mm -hmm. Um, and his groundwork really helped me think about myself as a Christian first and as a political ideologue second.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Tom Woods was a big influence on you. Any anybody else that you would want to want to share about?
1: So Tom introduced me to you know that one of the best things about his podcast is that he has all of the formative names are really influential figures in the movement on his podcast at one time or another. So Michael Malice and his writings, I've been recommending the new right to everyone who will listen. It was an amazing book, uh, the best book that I read book last was year. So
0: enlightening. I read it as well, and I was. Like I rapidly listened. I listened to it. I was like, all right, this is, I just kept consuming it. Yeah. Yeah. So Michael Malice, tell me, tell me what you liked about his book there.
1: Uh, well, so the new, right. I mean, it's so dense. I could probably read it once a year for the rest of my life and not pull everything there is to get out of it. Mm. But I think he does such a great job of walking the line that Christian or, um, excuse me, that libertarians are sort of forced to walk between these fringe ideas that are either absolutely abhorrent or, just not at all where we want to stand as uh, libertarian, mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a it's such a big tent, right? but yeah, um, and as a Jewish man, thinking about these like rabid anti-Semites and how they kind of come from the liberty worlds oftentimes and reflecting on uh, cathedral and and the evangelical left, and how we should be thinking about conservatism, ink and conservatism thought in the u s. All of which I, I find absolutely fascinating, and it's really helped me wrap my head around how I should be thinking about left and right in the in the U.S. and sort of mm-hmm. how I interact with these ideas because they're they're not merely the it's it's not enough to say that you know uh, the average activist leftist on college campuses is just indoctrinated by their schools though he would argue and I would agree that's absolutely a big part of it. But it's more so this idea of the evangelism of left thinking and how anyone outside of their approved parameters on the political spectrum are moral monsters requiring the uh, salvation of being woke. And it's very interesting. And and on the flip side, I don't mean to get too tangential, but I find the right to be the more frustrating of the two, considering all of that, because the right is really the modern American right is very much sort of this unprincipled blob of reactions to this progressive movement. And yeah. instead of setting out clear frameworks for what they imagine a, a government to look like, they're merely tinkering with the proposals and ideas of left progressives for the last you know 100 years in one way or another yeah. um, without ever setting forward sweeping changes to the way that we cooperate as people.
0: Yeah. No, I agree with you. You know, you used a phrase earlier, the phrase evangelical left, which Malice uses in the book, the new right. I'm pretty sure I was at least a third of the way through before I realized he was not talking about left-leaning evangelicals. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh wait, he's not using that term because I've used the term evangelical left right? and I'm not reading the book. I was listening to the book. So I wasn't able to see that he wasn't like whether he was capitalizing either of those letters or whatever. And I was like, Oh, he's talking about the like the the rabid leftists who are like, this is our call. And evangelical is a good word because they are, you know, that is their religion. Mm-hmm. And if you aren't saved by your wokeness, then, you know, you're going to go to hell or you're creating hell for the rest of us. I mean, that's really it gets to somewhat religious language. And it so I had to realize that Malice, who probably doesn't even know about an evangelical left and an evangelical right, I mean, he probably does, but I'm sometimes surprised of things he doesn't know when he's having conversations. Like, he's like, oh, no, I didn't know about that when he talks to, like, Dave Smith about something. But anyway, the way in which the right has reacted, it's almost as if they're just reacting to the left, and there's, you're right, there's no, like, solid plan or way forward. Like, the old right seemed to have more principled purpose forward, and the new right seems to, like, I think the... The pedigree of the old right is sort of like waning um, because nobody knows about them anymore. Nobody reads them anymore, or at least not, you know, popularly. So, you know, here we are. We have a left and the right that just is seemingly, you know, they're just at each other. And we libertarians are here sitting on the sidelines watching. And and we're some, not maybe not even always on the sidelines, but we're sitting here watching all this. And we're like, look, you guys, you, you need better principles, you know, or
1: a a principle.
0: (laughs) Well, or a principle. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously they think they have principles and they could argue, argue with us about that. But so you became a libertarian and a Christian and you now have, I don't know when you started your blog, antiwarvet.com, but that's a specific way to be libertarian is to be on that sort of platform of like, I'm anti-war and I'm about peace. You know, you could have started a blog about all kinds of things. You could have started a blog about just being a Christian libertarian. So what is it about the peace aspect of things? And maybe just give your perspective on, you know, what are your thoughts on more theologically on war and and peace and how how do we get there?
1: Yeah, well, so um, I I just want to make a quick amendment. It's the anti-war war vet. Uh, a little bit of redundancy, but I like the way the AWWV looks. Um, uh, so anti-war war vet was sort of the, and, and is infrequently posted to blog. Unfortunately, I, I have two small kids, not unfortunately, I have two small kids, but unfortunately I don't have a ton of time. Um, <laughs> we we so, know what you mean.
0: Even though yeah, yeah. those of us who've had small kids, we, yeah. we, we both understand that you didn't mean it that way. And also if, and if you did wink, wink. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> so, uh, my kids are wonderful, but the the blog became sort of my hope at, in finding a niche that I think I could contribute to and one that I think I could have a little bit of credibility in. And so I was gonna start the Libertarian Christian University. I saw you guys already had that space filled. So I went with the anti-war side instead. And it's been good. I mean, I, I think it's an important aspect of the liberty movement that we really hammer the the peace issue it's been beaten to death but the idea of the war being war being the health of the state Mm -hmm. is something that i think we we should really be putting to the forefront of the way that we think about foreign policy foreign news yeah and it's a really challenging issue and the more you read and think and learn about foreign policy and world affairs, the more it becomes complex and challenging. And so I'm hoping that in time, I'll be able to build a community of anti-war veterans who write and think about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's I'm, I'm working alone and um, putting out content is hard. So I'm primarily active on my Instagram, but I'm really interested in reaching the Christian audience first, because I think if I'm going to find a segment of the population who maybe isn't libertarian and maybe doesn't have strong feelings about war, but does have at least a professed foundation for loving your neighbor and peacemaking. It's, it's going to be in, in my brothers in Christ. And so that's my ultimate hope, but how much success I'll, I'll have, uh, who knows?
0: Well, I certainly wish you lots of success in that area. And I mean, we've, at LCI, I mean, we support that sort of message, especially. And so, yeah, I mean, anything we can do to support that as well, we could, we should talk about that. What do you think of the term pacifist? Do you call yourself a pacifist? Do you qualify that by saying yes and no? Where, where are you with that question? And we, we've had a number, I'm, I'm asking because we've had a number of like actual, like pretty, and, and they would all be like left-leaning theologically, pacifists on to talk about their views on Jesus. And I just am kind of curious where you are.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of curious where I am too. I, I think, um, you know, if push came to shove and I felt that there was an absolute need I can wrap my head around that and I I have I think a fairly aggressive sort of nature and it's you mean one, you can
0: wrap your head around taking someone's life if they're a threat. I can wrap my head around
1: yeah I guess both positions but yeah that's what I was trying to refer to is yeah. the idea of using force or violence against someone else. However, I I find the arguments for pacifism extremely compelling as Christians and I'm hopeful that it's never something that I have to be faced with, Mm -hmm. frankly, because I I don't know that I would do the Christian thing. But, you know, I I work as an ER nurse right now. And I actually just had this uh, ridiculous run in this week with a a patient and like a minor assaulting patient. And, um, you know, I, I noticed that like in these moments of tension and physicality, you kind of get to your basest self really quickly. Mm-hmm. And I don't really like my basist self at all. It's one of the major driving factors of why I became a Christian and put my faith in, you know, this this formative way of living, because yeah. I, I think it's important. Um, so to answer your question simply, I don't think I'm a pacifist, but I I absolutely value that position and I want to live as a pacifist as much as possible.
0: Yeah. You know, the the whole you don't like your basest self. That is a very aware observation about your mindset, in like, I guess I could call it an altercation to some extent, but in an aggressive situation. For me, and your kids are much younger than mine, but I still have kids that frustrate me. <laughs> and I guess I'm I'm sure I frustrate my parents, so I guess that's never <laughs> going to be a problem but they're never going to go away. But like there are moments where your kids just aren't listening and you have that like you have that bit of anger toward them and if you even if you don't do anything physical, your body and the way in which you feel toward your kids or even a a neighbor or your dog or your cat or you know like whatever it is when you can be aware of how your body reacts to things that are angering and disrupting to you you know and you can recognize that this isn't my best self you know what i mean right and Thank God for my wife who kind of points these kind of things out to me because she's a, she's a psychologist and she's like, do you notice how your body's feeling right now? Like, this isn't you. This isn't your best self. And so somehow when we get into violent potentially or actually violent situations, the way in which we are and react is not often our best self. Now, I don't want that to be construed, just so people might misunderstand me here, that if you are literally about to defend somebody from killing your child or some child nearby you, that that's your basis self and you shouldn't feel good about keeping that person from killing the child. No, that's, a, that's an instinct of protection, and, and that's very different. But I have too often seen... Christians and Christian libertarians and Christian conservatives, mostly, who say they are so in favor of things like gun rights and their right to kill somebody. It's as if they don't realize that, like, they, they don't think that this is a last resort. They think of this as an opportunity. Right. I don't know if they actually see it that way, but that's how they come off. And so, you know, your acknowledgement of like how you feel when you're in just a minor, not even, I mean, I'm guessing the situation you were just thinking of was not something you were about to be killed, no. um, but it was a stressful and physical altercation.
1: So I, I find the conversations around violence and the use of individual violence really similar to that of um, the state and like the minarchist anarchist argument mm. in that the idea that a, a small you know, night watchman state will be self-contained and not have aspirations for, you know, exponential growth in its for its own sake mm-hmm. is really hard to imagine. And there will always be the dragon on the other side of the wall that has to be slain. And mm. it's, you know, when when we think about like these police shootings and stuff that are are going on right now, you you can see regardless of how you feel about them, not you per se, but just the listener, there are absolutely egregious uses of deadly force by police officers that in the court of law and in the court of public opinion many times, especially for those that stand behind the thin blue line or whatever, there are logical, ideological arguments to be made in favor of deadly force in all sorts of ridiculous circumstances. I think the same can be said for the state. I mean, we have these... Aggressive foreign wars throughout all of my lifetime that can absolutely be defended on all of these various grounds, whether legally or morally, or um, you know, from like a duty-based perspective as this superpower. But the question I think, that is more pressing is not whether or not you can, but whether or not you really should. And so violence, to me, um, is something that I, I think, just like the state, we have to be actively guarding against all the time because so often I think it can get away from us and we can always post hoc justify our our actions, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Peaceful resistance. You have a story on your blog about Joan Nicholson. Mm. Would you be able to recount her story? I mean, I would want our listeners to go to your blog, antiwarwarvet.com now that I get it correctly and read the full, but like, just tell us the basics to kind of get the, get the sense.
1: Yeah. So Joan is fascinating. And I actually, over a phone call that I haven't made in a while, but she was good enough to let me talk to her. She is a Pennsylvania native who, as are you actually, right? Yeah. 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 Um, she lives. in. Well, no,
0: sorry. Let me, let me correct that. I'm not a Pennsylvania native. I live in Pennsylvania and I probably will. I will probably live here for the rest of my life, but I did not come from Pennsylvania. I'm I'm just going to sort of make (laughs) that clear.
1: (laughs) Um, well she is, uh, she still lives there too. Um, not far from where she grew up. And she, her family was really involved in the Quaker movement and the Friends Society. And uh, she is now very sympathetic to the Quaker position, but not a Christian. And I came across her because she, uh, at 85 years old, stands on Highway 1 in in Lancaster County, or Lancaster, I think I say it wrong, and holds up signs, uh, topical signs about U.S. foreign intervention and stopping the wars. And so after talking to her, she had a very long Life of peace activism. she was living in intentional communities, um, communes, kind of just trying to live her her best life and uh, and be good. She's a very like left progressive anti-war code pink mother Jones figure, and uh, I don't begrudge her that she's she's wonderful. And she now lives in a retirement home and she gets up every morning. she has her her egg and toast and she walks out with her signs that are Radical, calling for the end of the U.S. blockades on Yemen that are killing millions of uh, babies, and ending the interventions in Iraq and uh, aggression towards Iran, and the drone bombings of American citizens and innocent people all over the world. And it, it's a fascinating case of somebody who, uh, on her face, or you know, in what you see is is not what you get. She is not the vanilla uh, retirement home resident. She's a, an absolute radical who really thinks about this stuff deeply and cares about peace. She's been arrested several times. She was arrested in the Pentagon uh, when you could still walk into the Pentagon uh, as a Vietnam activist. And uh, she was arrested in the White House for pulling out a, a map of Vietnam with a friend and spilling fake blood, uh, actually not fake blood, her own blood, uh, all over it. She had it drawn from a doctor. So it just, she, she was an amazing woman, uh, is an amazing woman, and um, she's done a lot, I think, to 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 show that th- there's many faces to this, to this movement, right? You mm-hmm. don't have to be, uh, the long haired sixties hippie. You can absolutely be the, <laughs> um, which I, you know, I, I don't get me wrong. I love the hippies. The that's awesome. But you know, she's a very, she's a very conventional looking and seeming and talking person, um, who has these radical ideas for peace.
0: So I would recommend people read her whole story on, on your website. And there's actually like, it looks like there's a few that more than just like one article on that. And so, yeah, I really appreciate people who are willing to stand up for peace and kind of stick to, sorry, I was about to say stick to their guns. That's really <laughs> ironic. So I'll leave it in. Um, <laughs> do you feel like that there is a place for violence in the justice of like ending a conflict? So, that's not a very clear way to ask that question. Let me, I'll tell you a story to tell you kind of what I'm thinking. So I don't know if you're familiar with the story, the book, and, and there was a movie, Unbroken. No. It was basically a World War II vet who, gosh, he survived a, a there was a plane crash, and he ended up in a POW camp in Japan. And the story, like a third of the book, is his experience in the camp. And I remember thinking, clearly knowing the outcome, that the war in in Asia was ended by the, the atomic bomb by the United States. I remember reading this book thinking, this is agonizing. This is terrible. These people are mean, or not even mean. This is just evil sort of like treatment, right? When are the Americans going to finally bomb? Like how close are we to this situation? Because I didn't quite know the dates that they weren't quite shown or it wasn't quite written that way in the book. And I'm just like, I found myself wanting for this just bomb to drop, like literally in this case. And every now and then I hear people argue that sometimes you just need a large, big force to sort of keep the peace and to sort of like end the the violence. Right. And I don't think violence is necessary to stop wars. And I think or to stop war as as a phenomenon. But I have heard it said that things like, you know, dropping the atomic bomb on the cities in Japan because it ended the war, it possibly saved more lives uh, than it than it actually killed because the war could have gone on and on and on and on and it would have you know it's like we're just going to end it right. What are your thoughts when you think about the argument that you know what we just need to have a strong a strong arm that will keep the peace. Mm. You're gonna you might already know this as a father, but sometimes your kids are fighting and they just they just need to know that dad's in charge. Yeah, and it's not that dad's violent, it's not that dad's spanking or hitting them or whatever, but just like that there is a dominant presence going on there.
1: Yeah, there's so much there. So uh, I, I want to start from the end there. I think the paternal nature of the way that we think about the state is is actually more influential than we sometimes give it credit for. And so mm. um, in the case of foreign policy, it may very well be that American conservatives or just centrist pragmatists think that that's exactly the force that we should be trying to achieve. But I would challenge anybody who holds that view to go back through history in the last uh, 100 years or in the last 50 years since the end of World War II and demonstrate how using a a large force domestically has achieved peace abroad. Uh, As far as I can tell, based on the the foreign interventions of the US military, Korea, Vietnam, actions in Africa and the Middle East, um, rising tensions with major nuclear powers it's all not only cynically political and beholden to the wills of the political class, but also extremely catastrophic for these various areas, and never in pursuit of peace, right? so uh, to to talk about Japan just for a second, I mean, I tend to side with Eisenhower, who knew a whole lot about the situation on the ground than the average reader does, who was uh, vehemently against dropping the bombs on uh, Japan and um I think that if we we want to try to maintain this position of being the city on the hill and this beacon of light for the world to gaze starry eyed upon, we have to recognize that uh, we can't then make arguments like we should um, we should turn little babies in Japan into uh, to shadow burns on the pavement because uh, we don't want to kill more Japanese. You know, this is mm. uh, this is a dose of unfortunate necessity, I think, is is a horrifying argument. And the fact that the only country in the world to have used these terrible weapons is the U.S., I think, is very telling of the potential for just terrible outcomes when these sorts of weapons or these sorts of decision makers are involved, uh, decision makers being primarily military men and militarist politicians. Um, you know, the, the question of nuclear weapons is one we could talk for another hour about. But you know, all, suffice to say, I, I don't think that U.S. foreign policy or the U.S. military has been a servant to the good very often, if ever. And that's not a very popular position to take. But uh, I can argue against every American foreign intervention from the start, uh, and and I think that it's wise for us as Christians to be extremely skeptical and rankle at the beginning of every conversation about the use of the military. Because if we want to look at, you know, if World War II was the ultimate altruistic foreign policy measure, then everything preceding it that led to it and everything that's followed uh, as a result of these two major world wars has been nothing but contrary to the ultimate ends of achieving peace and, um, you know, national self determination and uh, democratizing these countries that are led by autocratic, theocratic dictators and whatnot. I mean, we. We have not done a whole lot of good in these areas by trying to remake the world in our image.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that, of course. Before we wrap up here, I want to get your take. We're recording this a few weeks ahead of July 4th, 2020. And so and the episode will be released before then. So I'm just kind of curious as a veteran, how do you feel? How do you go into these sort of holidays You know, I don't know, right now you may or may not be allowed to get together with your family, but, you know, obviously you've had the experience of doing so in the past. So how do you approach these sort of events and and stuff?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a rich history uh, in every country that you can draw upon and be proud of in some respects. And so I have a little bit of that like Boy Scout patriotism in some ways, because Mm -hmm. I do appreciate at least the lip service um, of a constitutional republic, uh, whether or not we have that or have the best results of that, you know, is, remains to be seen. We specific. don't always live up to it. Yeah, or, or rarely. But um I appreciate that the idea of a radical political decentralization movement like the U.S. colonies is precisely what we should be advocating today, even within our own country. And so I'm a huge proponent of uh, secession and radical decentralization. I think it's the single only political cure for the Leviathan that is our federal government. And mm-hmm. so I have, I guess, complicated feelings about Independence Day. I, I don't think it relates at all to modern military or um, offers an, ex- an opportunity to like thank some veteran with their uh, Denny's free breakfast, <laughs> free breakfast um, yeah. for their service. But um, Curb, curbside free breakfast. This that's year. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You got to have the <laughs> grand slam in your driver's seat. Um, you know, I, I think I think it's a it's a difficult thing to kind of tease out ultimately but I it's something that I'm I'm happy that I live here and um you know that's one of those points that libertarians don't like wrestling with when they're radically opposed to the US government is is it's an obvious one but it's where else would you rather be and I don't know that there are a ton of places I would rather be this is my home and it's a place that I love um it's, and it's filled with people that I love mm-hmm. it's a place that I believe in, and that I want to see achieve its best self. And I don't think we've had that for a very long time, but uh, I think the intellectual arc that led to the drafting of the Declaration of Independence and these intellectual giants that were writing these various things, I think that they have a lot to contend with, and I think they've done ultimately a lot of good for me, personally, mm. being able to live um, in northeast the United States.
0: Yeah. I really appreciate, John, you coming on and talking about your story and your experience and your your insights into, you know, your thoughts on various things that we've conversed about here. So thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, this was great, Doug. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you like today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group. You are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Katherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.
0: Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download
1: the audiobook today, go to to calltofreedombook.com.